I'll ask you to use your imaginations this morning. As this morning when I woke up, I had this beautiful black shirt with Zimbabwe and the Zimbabwe flag, and wonderful Zimbabwe design on it that I was given on yesterday evening that I was supposed to be wearing today. And then as I was getting ready to come, I took the shirt out of the bag and I put the shirt about that far. Um, anyway, I'm going to give it to one of my sons. But just imagine that I had that beautiful black Zimbabwe shirt on before you this morning that I was so excited to be wearing, but wasn't able to. Um, I guess because I'm a little larger than the average Zimbabwe or something. Um, if you have your Bibles with you, open them to Revelation 19. Revelation 19. Over the course of this weekend, we've been examining marriage and family from a variety of angles and perspectives. Um, we, we've looked at it from uh, Genesis, we looked at marriage and creation, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And then we looked at marriage and the fall, in Genesis 3. Then in light of that, we went to Ephesians 5 and 6, and we looked at marriage and family um, in the context of Christ's redemptive work. And now we want to go to the end of the Bible. We started at the beginning of the Bible. We now want to go to the end of the Bible. And we want to look at marriage in light of our eschatological hope. And the main point that I want you to see this morning is that marriage is not an end in itself. That's so important for us to understand. Marriage is not an end in itself. Marriage points to something greater. And that something greater is what gives our marriages and our families significance. And if we don't understand that, um, all we can be is disappointed. Amen? If, if I believe that my marriage is an end in itself, that my marriage is meant to be something that satisfies me in an ultimate sense, if I believe that my marriage is something that is meant to fulfill all of my needs, there's a couple of things wrong. Number one, it's blasphemous to look at something outside of God himself to fulfill all of our needs. But number two, I am asking of my wife or a woman is asking of her husband something that that spouse can never deliver and was never designed or created to deliver. And the only thing that that can lead to is frustration and disappointment. So we have to think about marriage from this perspective and in this way. And Revelation 19 really gives us the theological foundation upon which that thinking is built. So if you'll join me there, Revelation 19, let's begin at verse one. Let's read those first uh, nine verses. After this, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a cry, oh, I'm sorry, of a great multitude in heaven crying out, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God for his judgments are true and just. 
for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more, they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a, fo I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. An amazing scene here on a number of accounts, but amazing most of all because of what it says about marriage. The picture that it paints of marriage the eschatological hope of marriage. And when I say eschatological, it's a, it's a big word. Eschaton means the end or the culmination of all things. So in biblical language and theological language, when we talk about the eschaton or eschatology, we talk about the end times, the, the, where things are moving towards, the culmination of all things. So there's a couple of things that we see here about marriage that we need to take note of. Number one, that marriage is a cause for celebration. Amen? Marriage is a cause for celebration. We see that throughout the text. First, the redeemed praise God. We see the multitude cries, hallelujah. The 24 elders and the four creatures cry, hallelujah. The voice from the throne says, praise our God. The multitude again cries, hallelujah, rejoice, exult, give him glory. They celebrate because of redemption. The marriage of the lamb has come. The bride has made herself ready. They celebrate because of righteousness. The fine linen that the bride wears is the righteous deeds of the saints. So there is rejoicing in this marriage. There is rejoicing in this wedding. And in this particular wedding, again, all, all earthly weddings point to this heavenly reality. Amen? All earthly weddings point to this heavenly reality. So the rejoicing that we feel at an earthly wedding is a small foretaste of the rejoicing of all God's creatures 
in that heavenly wedding when the Lamb is united for all eternity with his bride for whom he laid down his life and died there is this great rejoicing and when we think about our own weddings and our own marriages we we do need to rejoice and exult because of what we are seeing in front of us but beyond that and more significantly that than that we need to rejoice because of what it points to we need to rejoice because of the picture that it paints it's interesting so much of it has been lost you know nowadays when we have weddings there there are these big productions and the big productions usually have more to do with what people have seen in movies you know or or or, or you know what they've read in, in, in books or on television or what they've seen in the latest magazines or what they saw at the latest celebrity wedding than they do with what we find in the scriptures but there are so many things in weddings that come right out of our biblical theological understanding. For example, you know, the idea of a room being split into two sides and a bride coming down the center aisle. Why do we do that and what does that signify? It is a picture of cutting a covenant. It is a picture just like the covenant that God cut with Abraham where the animal was split in two and God himself walked between the animals to signify the covenant. That's why we do that. Why does a father walk a bride down the aisle? And why do we ask who gives this woman to be married? And why does the father say, I do? Nowadays in our you know, new feminist reality, we say her mother and I do. Um, but, but it's the father's duty to give away the bride, not the mother and the father. It's the father's duty to give away the bride. Why? Because our heavenly father, when he created the first bride, brought her to Adam, the groom. That's a picture. That's a picture. When a bride comes down arrayed in fine linen, what is that? It's a picture. It's a picture of what we see here in Revelation 18. It's a picture. When there are oaths and vows, what is that about? It's a covenant. It's a picture of a covenant. That's what we're doing there. And so many others. And on and on and on we could go. But what we're doing is we're pointing to a greater reality. Folks, why is it? that a marriage means anything? Why is it that a wedding means anything? Think about that for a moment. Two people come together and they say words. So what? People say words all the time. But two people come together and they say words and they solemnize this union and all of a sudden, we believe and we witness the fact that something beyond what we're seeing has just taken place. But why? Why? Is it because the minister has some significant authority? Maybe it's because of the state and the papers that you sign with the state. Maybe it's because of our traditions. Maybe it's because, no, it's not because of any of those things. It's because of the greater reality. It's because this covenant is being witnessed before God and before God's people. And the God of the universe is the one who seals 
this solemn covenant and this solemn union. Therefore, the words that we speak carry greater word, greater weight than our individual words could ever carry. Because of the heavenly, supernatural reality to which these events point. And so it's a cause of great rejoicing because of this greater reality. Secondly, not only is marriage a cause of celebration, but marriage is a picture of the rejection of Babylon and the embrace of Jerusalem. We see that really through the way that the text is set up. Revelation 18 is the judgment of the great prostitute. It's interesting that Babylon is personified as a woman, but she's personified as a prostitute. The great whore of Babylon is the reference. And, and, and on the other side of it, there's the marriage to the bride. We have prostitute in chapter 18, and then we have a bride in chapter 19. And then in chapter 20, we have the judgment of Satan. And then in chapter 21, we have the new Jerusalem. So Babylon, the great, is judged in 18. Then we see the bride in 19. Satan himself is judged in 20. And then we see the new Jerusalem in chapter 21. These things are juxtaposed against one another because we recognize that marriage is not only, and the marriage of the Lamb is not only about embracing the bride, but it is also about rejecting the whore, rejecting the prostitute, rejecting everything that she offers. So we join together, forsaking all others. Is that not a phrase that we use? Forsaking all others. You see, to be united to this one, by definition means rejecting everyone who's not this one. Both of those things are necessary. That's the statement that's being made in marriage. Thirdly, marriage is a picture of patience and hope. It's a picture of patience and hope. Again, it's not an end in itself. It points to something greater. Babylon offered immediate gratification. Babylon said you can have it all and you can have it now. And there are those who decided that they would have it all and they would have it now. Babylon offered counterfeits. Babylon offered food and drink, but it's food and drink that will never, never satisfy and that will always leave you longing and yearning and wanting more food and more drink. Babylon offered wealth, but the wealth that Babylon offered was a wealth that would never be enough. It would never satisfy. Babylon offered intimacy, communion, but that intimacy and that communion would always leave you wanting. All of these things are good and are God-given. However, these things are only good 
when we receive them from God himself. Babylon offered it all, but she offered it without God. Revelation 18.3 For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Babylon offered it all, and people ran to her to receive it all, but it was all a counterfeit. There's a picture of this painted in Proverbs. It's interesting that uh, the regular reading for this morning was in Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 9, verses 13 to 18. Turn there. Proverbs does what Revelation does here. In Revelation 18, we have the, the, the personification of sin as the whore of Babylon. And then in Revelation 19, we have the personification of righteousness as the bride of Christ. And in Proverbs, we have the, 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 the whore, the prostitute, but we also have dang folly. And at the same time, we have the personification of wisdom who cries aloud in the streets. Revelation 9, verse 13. The woman folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest place of the town, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. She promises life and gives nothing but death. Proverbs 20, 17, bread gained by deceit is sweet to a man. But afterward, the mouth will be full of gravel. The world offers counterfeit versions of that which only God can supply, and they never satisfy. It's interesting. I did a wedding uh, last weekend. I, I, I pointed out the fact that there was a, a movie last year it was sort of the number one box off romantic comedy uh, last year. And I, 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 I still don't remember the name of it, but um, Jennifer Lopez was the, was the star of the movie. You know the name of the movie? Marry Me, yes. Yes, the movie was called Marry Me, right? And it had a nice soundtrack with some nice songs in the soundtrack and everything. But, but, but here's the thing, Jennifer Lopez a woman who I believe was about to embark on her fourth marriage was playing a woman in the movie who was about to embark on her third or fourth marriage. And, and this was the number one romantic comedy of the year. Here's the point. Jennifer Lopez 
is a shining example of what a lost and broken and dying world is all about. She wants Revelation 19. She wants it. She wants it so bad that three or four times she's tried. And every time she tries, it's this expensive, elaborate, you know, huge celebratory affair that tries in an earthly sense to emulate this heavenly reality. But because it's Babylon and all Babylon has to offer after a short while, it's over. Because it can't deliver. A million dollar wedding can't give you a successful marriage. Amen? Amen? Amen. You can have all of the trappings on that day. You can have Vera Wang herself make your dress. Huh? Jimmy Choo can make your shoe. But none of them, none of them can give you that which the Lamb offers. All they can give you is what Babylon offers. And eventually, it does not satisfy. Because it has nothing to do with the heavenly reality. Fourth, finally, marriage is a picture of salvation. Marriage is a picture of salvation. And it's there to remind us of salvation, of our hope of salvation. In this chapter, we start again in the first part of chapter 19 with Babylon. And there is rejoicing because Babylon is judged. It's an amazing reality, right? And it's interesting. I, I a worship class that I, I took in, in seminary sort of pointed this out, that from a biblical perspective, we see rejoicing as much over God's judgment of sin as we do over God's salvation of sinners. But as Christians, we sing almost no songs about God's righteous judgment of sin. It's just, it's just there's, there's very few out there. It's very few that you can find. It's very few that have ever, ever been written, right? Um, but when you look at Revelation 19, let's let's look at the let's look at the text again. Go to the beginning of, of Revelation 19. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For what, what's this great hallelujah? Praise the Lord for? For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The prostitute is being destroyed. She's being judged. She's being sent to hell. And the people of God are rejoicing over her judgment. 
24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you servants who fear him, small and great. Why? Because he judged sin. Because his wrath was poured out on sin. And God is glorified, not just in the salvation of sinners, uh, of sinners, but also in the judgment of sinners. This is an important reality. This is an important reality. Because oftentimes, for example, in evangelism, we think, you know, we, we, we preach the gospel, we share the gospel with someone, and, you know, the person, if the person comes to faith, then, you know, amen, hallelujah, praise the Lord, then, 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 then everything's been successful, and, 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 and that's all good. But if the person doesn't come to faith, somehow, somehow, um, there, 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 there's no glory for God in that. Um, maybe not yet. But one day there will be. Because that person who rejected the gospel, that person who rejected God, that person who instead said, no, thank you, I'll take the whore of Babylon. I'll take the prostitute. He will be judged with her. And we will rejoice as much in the judgment of sinners who rejected the lamb in favor of the prostitute as we will rejoice in the marriage of the lamb to his pure bride. God is glorified in the judgment of sin and the judgment of sinners. By, by the way, don't we get this intuitively? One of the first phrases that we learn, no matter, no matter what language you speak, one of the first things that you learn to say with conviction is, that's not fair. We yearn for justice. We were created to yearn for justice and for righteousness. And one day it will come. Sin will be judged. People ask all the time, why is it? Why is it? It just, it seems like God is not paying attention. Because all of these unrighteous people seem to be prospering. It seems as though God is not even, it seems, as, it seems like he's not even aware. How? How could God possibly be aware of all of these things that are going on and not do something about it? Newsflash. He will. He will. And there will be much rejoicing in heaven when God's righteousness is vindicated vindicated as his wrath is poured out against sin as you look at the chapter though remember Babylon was our home for all of us Babylon was our home Babylon was all we knew not only was Babylon our home Babylon was our love we loved Babylon. We loved her choice fruits. We loved her delicious meats. 
We loved her fragrant aromas. We loved her sounds. We loved the sound of her voice. We loved her caress. We loved everything about Babylon. But the redeemed are those who've been rescued from Babylon. By the way, and let's let's be careful here, because oftentimes, oftentimes, the way we present ourselves is as though you know we stick our chest out and we go, yes, we are the redeemed. We are the ones who've rejected Babylon. Listen to me carefully. You did not reject Babylon. You were dragged out of her, kicking and screaming all the way. Amen. Amen. You didn't wake up one day and say, I don't like this food anymore. I don't like your voice anymore. I don't like it. No, you woke up one day and somebody had snatched you out and it was only then that you could see what it was that you had loved and realized that it was the stench of death. It's God's grace that pulled you out of Babylon. You never would have left on your own. Never. You would have been consumed and destroyed with her, clutching onto her all the way and shaking your fist at God saying he was unfair to judge you. Babylon was our home. Babylon was our love. And we need to keep this in mind when we engage with people who are in Babylon. <laughs> And we left that union and we're united with Christ. And it's only when we leave that union and are united with Christ that we can recognize the folly of what we have grown to love. Only then. I remember as a boy, I, I tell people all the time, I, I grew up poor. Poor, not poor. We couldn't afford the other or the R. We was just poor, right? <laughs> um, and I remember, you know, the day that I realized that we were, that we was poor. <laughs> we went and visited some friends of my mother who were well healed. And I remember coming home going, Mom, why didn't you tell me we were poor? <laughs> the reason I didn't know is everybody else around me was, was poor as well, right? I mean, I, I, I didn't know. It was only when I left my own poor environs and went somewhere else that I was able to see it. And that's how it is with Babylon. That's why people resist the gospel. Because they have no idea. None whatsoever. They don't get it. It's not until the scales are removed from their eyes that they realize that there was nothing there. That they finally realize why it was that they were never satisfied. Why is it 
that the wealthiest people in the world are always clamoring for more. Why? Why? It's amazing too, you know, both men and women, when they see these sort of celebrity marriages, right? And all of a sudden here is, you know, the most desirable guy in the world who's, who's getting married to the most desirable woman in the world and it's all over everything and people are sitting there and they're going man this is amazing like what what must it be like to be married to that person guys are going ah if i can marry her and women are going if he was you know and then a year later two years later these people are splitting up why because no one has ever been or will ever be beautiful enough. No one has ever been or will ever be handsome enough. All of that is temporary and it's fleeting. A Babylon convinces you that it can satisfy. And then when you don't, And it goes something like this. Here, here's, here's what I want. Here's what I'm looking for. I found someone and they're everything that I want and everything that I'm looking for. And now I have that person. And then in a little while, I'm dissatisfied. And then when I'm dissatisfied, I, I, I'm starting to see all the flaws in this person. I'm saying, okay, I thought this was all I wanted, but I want someone maybe who's a little taller, maybe a little more athletic, maybe not as tall, maybe someone who's more curvy, maybe someone who's less curvy, maybe someone who's, uh, someone who's not what this person is or someone who is what this person is not. Because Babylon convinced you that if you just found the right one, All of your desires would be quenched. All of your thirst would be quenched. And all of your desires would be satisfied. And they can't. They never will be. And it's only when we're brought out of Babylon that we come to recognize that those things that we thought would satisfy never could. And the one in whom we now find ourselves can never fail to satisfy. This changes our perspective. What this does for our own marriages is remarkable. Because now all of a sudden, the husband looks at the wife and the wife looks at the husband, not as someone who's designed to or even capable of meeting our every need. But one who's been granted to us by God as a picture of the ultimate reality and the ultimate hope that is ours. And when we see them in this way and from this perspective, it changes everything. If I look at my spouse and believe that they can or will meet my every need and satisfy my every desire I'm setting them up for failure and myself for disappointment but if I look at my spouse as an earthly temporal representation 
of the heavenly reality for which I hope. It changes everything. Finally, let me say this. This side of heaven, marriage is war. Amen? Amen. This side of heaven, marriage is war. Because we're living in the midst of realities that are marred by sin. The marriage of the Lamb is something that we look forward to with anxious anticipation because that marriage will be one that is not marred by sin. That marriage will be one that never has any disappointment. That marriage will be one that, that, that does not bear the scars of many battles and wars. You know, I've often said to people, you know, we, we, we like to celebrate um, people's 40th, 50th, 60th, we even heard about somebody's 70th wedding anniversary, you know, on, on Friday. And we look at that and we say, man, that's glorious. Here's what I want you to know. Nobody who's ever been married seven years, 70 years was married 70 years because they always met one another's needs and never had moments of difficulties. You find somebody who's been married 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years, and they can tell you three, four, five, ten times where it could have been over. Where things were that bad. But by God's grace, they made it another day. And then they made it another year. And then they made it another decade. Only by God's grace. Why? Because this side of heaven and this side of the marriage of the Lamb, there is no perfect union. Only imperfect ones that are shadows and likenesses of the perfect one that is to come. For those of you who are married, let me leave you with this. In those days where your marriage is less than satisfying, in those days where your spouse is less than ideal, in those days where your burden seems to be too great for you to bear and you don't think you can make it. Look to Revelation 19. Look to the marriage of the Lamb. Remind yourself that this is just a fleeting, temporal, earthly representation of the heavenly reality that is to come and that you are designed to yearn for that and allow the difficulties in your marriage relationship to cause you to yearn for that greater reality and to give you the amount of hope that you need to get over whatever hump it is that you're facing. Because as the psalmist says, weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Let's pray. Our great God and our Heavenly Father, we bow before you with gratitude for your goodness and your mercy and your kindness toward us. 
we bow before you in gratitude for the hope that you give not only through the redemptive work of Christ but through our anticipation of the consummation of that redemption at the end of the age Father we thank you for the small earthly blessings that you give us that are a foretaste of the heavenly ones to come Grant by your grace that we might see them as such, that we might embrace them as such, that we might enjoy them as such, and never treat them like an end in themselves. May this be especially true of our marriages. I do pray for those under the sound of my voice who are living in that reality, that you would grant them grace I pray for those under the sound of my voice who are anticipating that reality, who are yearning for that reality. And I pray, Lord, that even in the midst of their singleness, that may be tempted to turn into desperation, that you will remind them that regardless of whether or not you give them a spouse in the here and the now, they will be a part of the greatest marriage that the world has ever known and the marriage that gives all other marriages their meaning. And Lord, for all of us, we rejoice in your goodness. We praise you for your salvation and your loving kindness. And we thank you for this opportunity to gather together in your presence and among your people to offer that thanks to you in the form of our worship and our praise and our prayers and our thanksgiving and the ministry of the word. And for all of these things, we offer our thanks in the name of your son, our savior, our redeemer, our bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.